Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning as we turn to God's Word. We turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're taking a break from our series in Ephesians this morning in order to preach on a missions theme. Those of you who are newer to Westminster may not realize that this is not a a typical missions Sunday morning. It's our pattern often to invite an outside missionary who would preach on a, a missions theme. For those of you who have been attending Westminster for a while, this may be a, a bit of an uh, anticlimactic thing to have your week in and week out senior pastor preaching on, on missions conference. Uh, after all, I am not really coming to you with any harrowing stories from the jungle or uh, wonderful stories of uh, conversions to Christ or my own experiences of persecution or suffering, but we are coming together around God's word this morning. Last year, just after my installation in March, our session asked if I would give direction to this year's conference theme and then plan to speak for my first missions conference in order to bring scripture to bear on God's call to us as a congregation to missions and evangelism. And so that's our goal this morning as we look at Matthew 9. Now as some context for Matthew chapter 9, we're coming to the end of two chapters, Matthew 8 and 9, with one episode after another where Jesus heals the sick and casts out demons. In fact, in these two chapters, many of the the most well-known stories of Jesus' healing are found here in these two chapters. The centurion's servant, the madmen in the tombs of the Gadarenes that lead to the demon-possessed pigs, the paralytic who's told to take up his bed and walk, the ruler's daughter who dies on Jesus' way to his house, but then Jesus raises her to life again. The woman with the bl- flow of blood, two blind men and a mute man. These are all told in quick succession in Matthew 8 and 9. And when we come to the last verses of Matthew 9, what we see after this series of stories is a window into Jesus' own heart and his desire for missions and evangelism. So would you just read with me, if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, we'll just read these four verses, verses 35 to 38. This is God's word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. God, how we thank you that not only is this your word that you've preserved for us, but these were the words of your own son, Jesus Christ, as he walked on earth and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. Would his words continue to speak to us by your Spirit this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as as Lancaster County residents, we probably have more familiarity with farming 
than many people might do today as they come to a passage like this. Now, being familiar with farming doesn't mean that we can grow a successful garden, and my own garden this past year was evident of that fact, but we likely can picture more of what Jesus is talking about when he uses farming metaphors. We drive in and out of fields every day. We see the harvest growing and then reaped. We smell the signs of coming harvest in the spring. When I first moved to Lancaster County, I remember commenting to a friend of mine who grew up here. I said, you know, I love Lancaster County, but the smell of manure is a definite downside. And he looked at me and said, oh no, that's the smell of home. I don't, I don't think that I can quite agree with him yet. But each year we do watch the crops growing. We watch them maturing. We watch them coming to harvest. And in the fall, with particular crops, if you're like me and I drive home and I drive through one field after another, you can see harvesters at work late at night, late into the night, because there are some crops where if they're not harvested at the right time, at the right weather, then they will be lost. And I think that's part of the picture that Jesus has and is picking up on as we come here to Matthew chapter 9. But while the harvest is Jesus' main metaphor here, the thing that moves Jesus to speak about the harvest, the main force and energy, if you will, of this passage is not the harvest metaphor, it's Jesus' heart for the people. And what I want us to see this morning is that our eagerness for the harvest is not going to be sustained by a sermon on missions and evangelism every once in a while. Nor is it going to be motivated by a guilt or or a command. It will only come from drawing near to Jesus so that our hearts are shaped by Jesus' heart and his compassion and his desire shape our compassion and our desire. And as we work through these verses this morning, I, I want us to follow through this passage by seeing Jesus' heart, Jesus' command, and Jesus' desire. So let's begin by looking at Jesus' heart in verses 35 to 37. Matthew tells us in verse 35 that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every affliction. This is an action summary, if you will. This is the description of what Jesus is doing. But then in verse 36, the text draws near, and it reveals Jesus' heart, and it shows us why Jesus was healing and teaching and preaching. Here we see, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now over the course of chapters 8 and 9 here in Matthew, from town to town, from city to city, the crowds come to Jesus. They come carrying their sick. They come demon-possessed, in need of a Savior. And as these crowds come to Jesus over and over again, We see Jesus not responding to the crowds by noting the burden of having to deal with more needy people, not by looking at the crowds and thinking, boy, they're sort of getting what they deserve for their own sins. That's not what we see at all. What we see is Jesus looking out at those crowds and having compassion on them, seeing them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, well, what exactly does a sheep without a shepherd look like? Maybe we grow up in grain fields. Do we know what shepherding involves? 
Maybe, I think a great example came in the news just this past week. I don't know how many of you saw the news about Barak the sheep, or as the news was calling him, Barak. Barak was a sheep in Australia, and Barak escaped his uh, pasture several years ago and was lost in the woods. And he was found and rescued about a week ago with 78 pounds of wool on him. He had so much wool on him that he could barely walk for the burden of the weight on his back and the wool was over his eyes so he could not see where he was going and when he was sheared he was actually underweight perhaps from poor feeding. He'd been lost, burdened, sick, unlikely to survive unless he was rescued. That's a sheep without a shepherd. And here are the crowds coming to Jesus, burdened, wandering, lost, sick, in need of a savior. And Jesus' response is compassion. We see it in one episode after another in the gospel, but here in verse 36, we're told specifically that Jesus' earthly ministry of healing and of preaching the gospel of salvation is driven by a deep sympathy and compassion of taking to heart the sorrows and the need of the people. There's a beautiful new book that just came out this past year by Dane Ortland, titled Gentle and lowly. In this book, Ortland points out that when Jesus describes himself, not his nature as the Son of God, but his character, what he is like, the most direct description that Jesus gives him of himself is found in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. I am gentle and lowly of heart. As Ortland puts it, this is who he is tender, welcoming, understanding, willing. If we are asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. Now, if we wanted to pick up on 17th century English, we could perhaps go back to Puritan Richard Sibbs, who was stating, I think, something similar when he said, when Christ saw the people in misery, his bowels yearned within him. The works of grace and mercy in Christ, they come from his bowels first. For whatsoever Christ did, he did it out of love and of grace and of mercy. And we don't talk much about bowels today. That's bowels, not bowls. But to translate this into 21st century language, what Sibs is saying is that Christ's mercy and grace and love instinctively arise from who he is. And as Ortland traces through the Gospels and how many times Jesus draws near to those who are in need and how many times Jesus sees lost and sinful people, he draws near to them. Ortland comes to this conclusion. He says the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse His most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. The Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. Merciful affections stream from his innermost heart as rays do from the sun. And as Jesus sees the crowds and is moved with a heart of compassion, he is also aware of the urgency of the situation. And you see it there in verse 37. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Just like those harvesters that I see working late into night on a fall evening, 
knowing that there's a limited time in which to bring in the harvest or the crop will be lost. So it is with the harvest here. Because Jesus knows, as we should know, that every day that passes brings the return of Christ and the day of judgment nearer. And every day that passes for each individual person is a day closer to our death when we will stand before Christ. And Jesus, in his divine omniscience, knew the true extent of this harvest, that this harvest extended to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is a worldwide harvest. And so you can imagine Jesus in in his divine omniscience knowing the full extent of the harvest and maybe turning around and seeing this motley crew of 12 disciples. And what he says is the obvious fact. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And it is Jesus' compassion and his yearning to proclaim salvation to lost and anxious sinners combined with his divine understanding with the vast extent of the harvest that drives his desire for more laborers to be sent. As we think about Jesus' own compassion, perhaps we could turn and consider our own hearts. Because if we consider our own hearts, we should quickly realize that a life of faithful prayer and evangelism and missions will only be sustained if we draw near to Jesus so that his heart becomes our heart. And so that compassion arises from our very heart, from our our very bowels, if we want to use Sib's language, like it does for Christ. And our own hearts of compassion will only be cultivated as we consider our own sinfulness and helplessness. Even this week, as I thought about my own pride and wandering heart, my anxious, harassed, helpless sinfulness that was completely true of me before I knew Christ and is still so evident in my flesh. When I think of that, and then I think of Jesus, whose heart was complete purity and holiness, what we would expect in seeing those two things is that Jesus would stay separate. But instead, Jesus, who knows the full extent of my dirtiness and weakness and sinfulness, responds with love and compassion so that he brought the full resources of his divinity to the cross to give himself for me, for my forgiveness and cleansing and reconciliation and hope and for the salvation of any who will come to him and ask it in faith. That must shape our compassion for those around us. The 19th century Bishop J.C. Ryle read this passage in Matthew 9 and as he read this passage he asked this question he said do we feel tenderly concerned about the souls of millions near our doors do we long to see their spiritual destitution relieved the man who does not feel for the souls of all unconverted persons can surely not have the mind of Christ as it is shown to us here in Matthew 9 In many ways, it's a question of what we see when we look at the people around us. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about an example in my own life. It's the example of cats. See, I don't like cats. I don't like cats at all. And on top of not liking cats, I'm very allergic to cats. But some of you love cats. 
And in fact, if I went with our communications director, Elaine High, here, and we found a nice litter of new kittens, she would see adorable, cute, furry friends, and I would see a proliferating threat. And so the question really is, when we look at those around us, what do we see? Do we see a proliferating threat of secular people who do not agree with us? Or people who do not know the Good Shepherd? Who are led astray by false hopes and vain philosophies that will never satisfy? Burdened and anxious and in desperate need of solid hope that can only come through Jesus Christ. So that our hearts should be moved with compassion to pray and to hold out the name of Jesus as the King of compassion, as the Savior of the world, who offers just the salvation and hope that we all need to any who will come to him and ask for it in faith. May our hearts be shaped by Jesus' heart, the motivating center for all of Jesus' response to the crowds. Well, this is Jesus' heart. How does Jesus respond? As Jesus looks at the crowds, With compassion, he turns to his disciples in verse 38, and here he gives one command. Here we see Jesus' command. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, I found Jesus' words here particularly interesting. He gives one command, and clearly his desire is for more laborers to bring the gospel to the harvest. But notice that his command is not okay, guys, it's time to move. Now, John, you go east and James, north by northwest, and Philip, you go down to Samaria and and let's go. That's not his command. His command is therefore pray. That is the word to all of Jesus' disciples. Why prayer? Why is this Jesus' command? Perhaps it's worth noting that God is the one who sends people into the harvest One commentator noted this. He said, these laborers must be God-sent, not self-appointed. And so God, if he does the sending, it is appropriate to to appeal to him in prayer to call more laborers into the harvest. But even more, I think the main reason that Jesus' instinctual command is to pray comes from his recognition that prayer is God's chosen means for accomplishing his purposes here on earth. Well, God is sovereign and can accomplish any of his purposes by his own power anytime he wishes. In his kindness, he has ordained the prayers of his people as the means of participating in and accomplishing his purposes. So that James 5.16 can say, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. I think of Paul, who repeatedly asked the churches he wrote to to pray for him, for an open door for the gospel and for his release from prison, to the point that in Philippians chapter 1, Paul can even say that his release and the success of the gospel will be accomplished through the Holy Spirit and their prayers, so that the prayers of God's people are joined to the power of the Spirit as the means through which God will accomplish his purposes. Now, I think if we're honest, and it comes to praying for missions, some of you have probably responded like me before. Maybe you've, you've gotten a, a prayer letter from a missionary, or maybe a, a missionary comes into your, your home, and we're really relieved when they say something like, we would love for you to give financially, but we're really happy if you would pray for us. And we think, there it is. 
I can sign up for the monthly prayer newsletter and I can pray once a month when I see the newsletter come in and I'm in the game with no guilt and I don't have to go to the extent of writing a check and being financially involved. We can think of prayer as the easy option. But if we really understand the call to pray earnestly, prayer is not the easy out here. Prayer that just checks a box is not what our Savior is asking for. Because prayer engages our hearts. Prayer is a dedication of ourselves to approach the throne of God, to draw near to Him, to hear His heart speak from Scripture so that our hearts beat with the same desire as His, bringing specific people before the throne of grace, asking that the Lord, the Heavenly Father, would send out laborers into His harvest and bring more people to know Him and to be a part of His kingdom. And God has ordained that prayer as the means of accomplishing his will. Pastor Joel Beakey, in a chapter that he wrote on revival. Revival is something we talk about often. It's something we want. And Beakey says, revival is, of course, always and only the work of God's spirit. There's nothing we do that is a guaranteed method of sparking revival. But, Beakey notes, revival as we look through history, is almost always preceded by a remarkable effusion of prayer amongst God's people. So that God uses His people's prayer to stir hearts to come to Him. The well-known commentator Matthew Henry puts it this way. He said, when God designs mercy, He stirs His people to pray. He stirs up prayer. If our hearts are stirred with the compassion of Christ, if we long to see more people come to know Christ, our Savior's command to us this morning is to pray, and to pray earnestly. And of course, this is a call to pray for all of our missionaries and our supported ministers. But if I could give us two specific applications as a congregation this morning, because I would like to see us as a congregation grow and commit to this kind of prayer And so first, I want to challenge us as a congregation. Maybe it's in the morning. Maybe it's during your devotions. Maybe it's in the evening. Maybe it's as a family around a meal. I would challenge each of us to commit to praying once a day for evangelism in our congregation and for God to call more men and women as laborers in global missions from our congregation. In fact, as you leave today, the ushers are going to hand you a bookmark And I would encourage each of you to take that bookmark and put it somewhere. And it reminds you and asks you to pray once a day for a heart for the lost, for evangelism in our congregation, and that God would raise up more missionaries from Westminster. My hope is that this is not a sort of one-week post-missions conference idea, but that this is an opportunity for us as a congregation to make a long-term commitment among ourselves to pray for the harvest and for more laborers to go to the harvest. Second specific opportunity, Westminster supports two missionaries, Ken and Tammy Matlack. And the Matlack's full-time role with Mission to the World is to train and mobilize churches to pray for missions and evangelism. And in a week and a half on Thursday, March 18th, we are going to host a Zoom night of intercessory prayer with the Matlacks. It'll be an hour where they'll do some teaching and encouraging of us, and then we'll have time to actually pray together. 
You can see more information in your bulletin or in the announcement sheet. But I would encourage as many of you as possible to attend that night so we as a congregation can be challenged and encouraged and equipped to pray together. Well, here we have Jesus. We've seen Jesus' heart, which has led him to call his disciples to earnest prayer. But as we conclude this morning, finally, I want to look at Jesus' desire. What are the disciples to pray about? They're not just to pray in general. They're specifically to pray that more laborers would be sent into the harvest. Why was this Jesus' desire? Well, if there's a vast harvest of harassed and needy people without God and without hope in this world, and the laborers are few, then Jesus' desire is just the logical conclusion. And just think about the need even today. Here in Mannheim Township, many of us think of Lancaster County as a fairly Christian county. But according to most recent census information, more than 50% of the 41,000 residents of Mannheim Township identify as non-religious. That doesn't include Muslim or Buddhist or Jewish, non-religious. In fact, our Bible to School ministry that is working in our public schools reports that prior to the pandemic, 50% of the 1,000 students coming to release time Bible instruction had no church attendance and were considered unchurched. The harvest is plentiful right here in our backyard. Well, think more broadly about the United States. Many of you have heard that nuns, the group of religiously unaffiliated or atheist identifying people in our country are the fastest growing population group by percentage. And while there is antagonism to Christianity in a number of ways, there is also just an increasing number of children and young adults who have never heard the gospel. They are people who grow up never knowing the stories of the Bible, not knowing who Jesus is. And so the harvest is plentiful right here in the United States. But then you begin to look worldwide there are those who are tell us that the rough estimate currently is that there are 7,360 languages spoken around the world. Do you know how many of them have the full Bible translated into their language? It's 704 out of 7,360. Now there are several thousand who have portions of the Bible and several thousand that work is being done on, but the point is that there are thousands and thousands of languages representing hundreds of millions of people who have no access to scripture in their language. And then there's the 1040 window. Many of you know the 1040 window, which stretches across North Africa and the Middle East and Southeast Asia, home to over 5 billion people. That's the majority of the world's population. And there, 97% of the world's unreached people groups live in this window. And yet, only 10% of missionaries are serving in the 1040 window. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And Jesus' desire is for more laborers. And it only makes sense. If you think about the harvest, think of what the harvest is like. Many of you know that the United States is home to vast farms in the West and the Midwest. The Simplet family farm is a a farm that dedicates 82,500 acres to the growing of grain and potatoes, mostly potatoes. In fact, the Simplet family farm on its own single-handedly has supplied the vast majority of potatoes used by McDonald's for their french fries worldwide. 
If the simplest handed me a hoe, or even if they put me behind a tractor and said, there you go, Chris, start harvesting. Like an 82,500 acres. I can't start harvesting. I need more laborers. And that is Jesus' desire. It is what we are all called to pray for. And I would encourage us as a congregation that as we pray for more laborers to be sent to the harvest, that we would not just do that in general, but that we would specifically pray that more of us from Westminster Presbyterian Church would be called and sent into the harvest. Over my seven years as a youth pastor, I prayed regularly that God would raise up missionaries from our teens. And it's such a joy to see six of our college and young adults who are either involved in or headed to medium and long-term missions. But would we pray for that as a congregation? Teens, would you pray that God would make it clear if he's calling you to global missions? Families, some of my wife and I's closest friends, a family with three kids, ten and under, were sent by Calvary Church two years ago to North Africa. Could God be calling some of you families? Maybe others of you are headed towards retirement. We have missionaries who have gone as a second career or as a calling in their retirement years. Might God be calling you? Parents, I know many of you pray for your children. You pray for your children's salvation. Some of you are already praying for your children's future spouses. Would you pray that God would send one or more of your children as missionaries into the global harvest? Grandparents, your prayers are a cornerstone of your grandchildren's walk of faith. Would you pray that God would be sending some of your grandchildren as laborers into the harvest? As you leave the sanctuary today, there's going to be a response card. You'll have an opportunity to let us know if you want to be more involved specifically in prayer or with one of our local ministries, or if God might be stirring your heart to consider missions. I'd encourage you to take one and turn it in at the information table or fill it out online. Our prayer is that God would be stirring us as a congregation, as laborers in the harvest. But as we conclude this morning, I don't want us to forget that this all comes back to the heart of Jesus. It was his compassion as he saw the crowds that led him to urge his disciples to pray because of his desire for more laborers in the harvest. And this isn't some motivational speech this morning that we should go out and conquer the world for Jesus. That's not what this is. Matthew 9 is a simple window into the heart of Jesus. The one who issues the call to every one of us, sinner whose wages of our sin is death, to come to him and find forgiveness and rest for our souls. Two weeks ago, I quoted from Nick Ripkin, who spent 15 years with his wife conducting interviews with persecuted Christians around the world, trying to figure out how the gospel had flourished in areas of persecution. And at the end of his book, Ripkin concluded this. He said, after 15 years, what we discovered in our interviews was not a method. It wasn't a strategy. It wasn't a plan. What we found was a person. It was the person of Jesus. And Jesus is very much alive and very much at work in the 21st century, just as he was in the first century. And brothers and sisters, it is as we know Jesus and we draw near to Jesus that we find not only our own salvation, but the heart of Jesus to pray and to go 
as laborers into the harvest for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for this window into the heart of Jesus, who saw the crowds burdened and helpless, sinners in need of a Savior, and he responded with compassion, a yearning of love and grace and mercy that instinctively rose from who he was as the Son of God and Savior of the world. How we thank you for Jesus, who has drawn near to us and saved us, and how we pray that he would continue to draw many more to him, and how we pray this morning that you would raise up some here from Westminster and many from your church to go as laborers into the harvest, that many more might know you as their Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.